All right, well, hello again. It's good to see you. Hope you got some rest last night. I was uh, asked when we were talking about this, as I was talking with Joe uh, about what he wanted me to do uh, over this weekend, his, uh, his desire was for me to talk about issues of counseling process or methodology. How do you proceed through counseling? He wanted me to talk about those issues of counseling process uh, in really practical ways. That's one of my favorite things to do because one of my frustrations, in fact, I think a real danger uh, facing the biblical counseling movement right now today in sort of a third generation is that we're going to have a commitment to the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture, but we're going to be missing skill and actually bringing the truths of Scripture to bear in the lives of people. If you can win a debate with a secular person that the Bible is about our problems, but not be able to sit with a troubled person and actually use the Bible to help them, then we'll destroy the biblical counseling movement from the inside. Uh, And so one of the pressing tasks facing us right now is to be able to match our convictions about the Bible with skill in using the Bible. And so one of the things that I've tried to do both last night and this morning and will try to do uh, as we continue throughout the day is to take the principles that we're talking about but make them sort of pop with practicality so that uh, we're talking about things that we can really use. Last night I mentioned my frustration over being stuck with this word counseling. And I could mention it again. I'm frustrated that we're stuck with that word counseling. I'm going to have to get over it because I lead an organization called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Um, but it's, it's frustrating that we're stuck with that word because we're talking about things that are more relevant than that language can sound. That language, as I mentioned last night, can sound like this is, this is for somebody else. When we're talking about counseling, we're talking about somebody who's got a degree in counseling, somebody who's got a specific calling to counseling. But really, as I mentioned last night, we're not talking about counseling as much as we're talking about change. That's exciting. That's something that the Lord is doing in your life. That's something that the Lord is doing in the lives of everybody you know. And that's something that he calls all of us to participate in. This morning, I could say that... We're not so much talking about counseling, but we're talking about pain. We're talking about difficulties that we all face. Uh, This is not something that is just relegated to a few of us with a specific calling. All of us encounter pain. All of us encounter loved ones who deal with pain. And the topic I'm supposed to speak about this morning is addressing sin and suffering with counselees in pain. We're, we're talking about pain, but the title of the talk illustrates the biblical truth that though people are in pain... Go back. Oh, maybe it's... Oh, no. Did that do it? Okay, good. All right. So I'll stay away from there now. Um, so the, the title of the talk illustrates that though we're talking about pain, and though whenever somebody comes for counseling help, they're in pain, the source of that pain is asymmetrical. People can come for counseling help when they're in pain because of sin, or they can come for counseling help when they're in pain because of suffering that they are experiencing. And we need to figure out how to help uh, in each and every context. In fact, to be as specific as possible so that we know what we're talking about, I want to talk about four contexts for sin and suffering in counseling. Four different ways that sin and suffering can show up uh, in the lives that God gives us to help. 
first context is counselees who sin apart from a context of suffering. Counselees who sin apart from a context of suffering. These are what we might call the high-handed sinners. These are the people, nothing's gone wrong, everything's going fine in their life, but they want a sinful thing, and so they go and do a sinful thing. And they're just guilty with no extenuating circumstances, we might say. A second context for sin and suffering in counseling is counselees who suffer as a result of their sin. Counselees who suffer as a result of their sin. So this is where you went and you sinned, you went and you did this wrong thing, and sin does what it does. It bites back. And now, because of this thing you did, you're in pain. You're responsible, but you feel the sting of your responsibility. A third context for sin and suffering is counselees who suffer apart from the context of their sin. This is uh, sort of the opposite of the first context. This is, you didn't do anything wrong. There's, There's nothing in your life that you did for which you are responsible, but suffering has come crashing into your life. You didn't get a vote. You didn't have anything to do with it, but there it is. And now you are in pain and you need some help. And then the fourth context is counselees who sin as a result of their suffering. This, again, is the sort of the opposite of the second one. You didn't do anything wrong. You're not responsible for anything. But the suffering came into your life. And now that the suffering comes into your life, you pull a Job's wife. And you say, curse God and die. Job's wife didn't do anything wrong until the suffering happened. And then when she had an opportunity to respond to the suffering, she didn't respond in faith, hope, and love, but she responded with, curse God and die. And there was the sin. And a sinful response to suffering she had nothing to do with. Those are four contexts for sin and suffering in counseling. And we're going to respond to each of those contexts in different ways. If we're going to do wise ministry here, we're going to respond in each of those four situations in a little bit of a different way. The extremes are relatively easy as far as ministry strategy is concerned. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There are uh, three kinds of people here, three kinds of ministry settings mentioned here. We'll talk about two of them in the context of this talk. The first is the idle. Anybody else have a different word there? unruly, undisciplined. Uh, Yeah, we're talking about sinful people. We're talking about high-handed sinners, the people who sin apart from any context of suffering. The text here says you got a, a ministry setting, an unruly, an idle, an undisciplined, a disobedient person, and the ministry strategy for that person is to admonish them. You rebuke them. You don't encourage them. We we don't encourage adulterers. Hey, go ahead. Keep it up. We don't encourage uh, men who are abusing their wives or women who are abusing their husbands. We admonish them. We rebuke them. We tell them to stop. We call them to repentance. A second ministry category is the faint-hearted or discouraged 
These are the people who are worn down. And the ministry response to those people is to encourage them. We don't rebuke faint-hearted people. This is, this is the person who is suffering apart from any context of sin in their life. They're just dealing with a difficulty. And we don't call them to repentance. I um, was standing next to a man uh, at a funeral home. We were standing at the head of his wife's casket. And she dropped dead at 34. And here he is with three kids. And as we stood at the funeral home, he's sobbing as these people process by his wife's casket. And this man came up to him and he said, you know, you should stop crying. You need to trust the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You need to bless the name of the Lord. And you see what he did? He used the Bible, but he used the Bible the same way the devil uses the Bible. The devil will quote God, but always out of context. And this man did that. He rebuked a man who needed encouragement. Listen, you're supposed to be sad when your wife dies. You get rebuked if you're happy when your wife dies. But when you're sad when your wife dies, this is, this is a time for encouragement. So we don't admonish the faint-hearted and we don't encourage the unruly. We admonish the unruly and we encourage the faint-hearted. Those are the easy ones for some people. Not the guy at the funeral home. Uh, but for most of us, those are the easy ones. As far as knowing what to do. It can be hard to know how to do that. But what about the more complicated situations? What about the second context I mentioned and the fourth context I mentioned? Counselees who suffer as a result of their sin and counselees who sin as a result of their suffering. Ministry at the intersection of sin and suffering in those contexts is a little more complicated. And that's what we're going to spend our time on this morning. Let's talk first about counselees experiencing suffering as a result of their sin. Described the situation a minute ago. You've got sinners. They've done things they should not have done, but now they're experiencing pain. What do we do? It's complicated. You've got sin and suffering right there together. Suffering that started because of sin for which they're responsible. We can think of a number of situations where this happens. There's limitless examples. I'll give you two. I was talking with a married couple. This was early uh, in my ministry. It was, I was in the second church that I was, I'd pastored. And there's a married couple in the church sitting there. They're sitting on the sofa in my office. And as we sat there, the man was involved in an ongoing adulterous relationship. He's married with kids, but he was in another relationship with another woman. And everybody knew it. And I'm sitting there saying, you, you have to quit. I mean, I didn't exactly do uh, Bob Newhart, but, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, was, it wasn't a lot more fancy than that, I'll be honest with you. And we can talk about that later. But I just said, you have to, you have to quit. And uh, he said, I can't quit. I can't quit. I I love her. He said, I love my wife too. But I don't want to live without either one of them. And I'm looking at his wife who's sobbing. I mean, can you imagine? You're sitting in the pastor's office and your husband is sitting there rationalizing his sexual relationship with a woman you know really well, by the way. And he's saying, I love both of them. I can't live without either one of them. And so I'm not going to quit. And uh, I said, uh, here's what you need to do. I need you to pick up your cell phone right now. And I want you to call her 
and right here in front of us, you need to break off the relationship. And he said, I'm not going to do that. And I said, okay. Um, I can't make you do that. But let me explain to you what's going to happen if you don't. And I explained a process that was going to end in a very embarrassing for him and very public removal of him from our church. The Bible says you've got to cleanse out the leaven. And so I just said, hey man, listen, we're just not going to have a deal here where we've got a person involved in leadership in our church and leadership in the Christian community in our area uh, where you just got two women going on. We're just not doing it. And he picked up the phone and he called this woman and he said, I'm here with my pastor. I'm here with my wife. I have to break it off. He hung up the phone and he sobbed. Now, let me just mention something here because I told this story a couple of times and I always get in trouble when I tell it. Uh, I don't think that man was changed when he did that. In fact, I was relatively confident once he hung up the phone that he couldn't wait to run out to the parking lot and call her again and, hey, this is what happened. He had a gun to my head, basically. And, and in fact, that is what he did. Um, but that's another story for another day. We can talk about that in the Q&A if you want. But here's the other thing. And, and this is the other thing that could get me in trouble. That man was legitimately in pain, wasn't he? I am not defending it. I'm not defending adultery. I'm not saying what he was doing was good. But I am just recognizing that he was in real pain over this loss. Do you see that? You've been there. I've been there. In God's kindness, I have never committed adultery against my wife. But I know what it is to love things that God hates. I know what it is to feel the loss when God takes something away from me that is really bad for me. And I just would submit to you that if you can feel no compassion for that man, then you might not have really reckoned with sin in your own heart. Now, where things get a little easier is we also have to feel compassion for the woman who's sobbing about, well, well, I would have to put up with this guy. But we can understand, we can appreciate, you know, I've lost things that were bad for me too. That man is in real pain. He's in pain because of sins he's committed, but he's in real pain. Here's another example. Uh, I was... uh, Sitting at my desk the last week of the term, it's uh, complicated at Southern because Southern has a graduate institution and an undergraduate institution. And so uh, the graduate, undergraduate institution runs a week earlier than the grad school. And so uh, there's about four weeks in the springtime where every professor at Southern is losing their mind because you have uh, finals, you have uh, uh, finals weeks, uh, graduate week finals week, graduate week. And so you're grading and doing all this stuff. And uh, so right in the midst of I'm trying to get all the college students up to date and graduated, I'm also doing final exams for the seminary students. So I'm eyeball deep, and I get this phone call from a student. And he says, Dr. Lambert, I have to see you right now. I have to see you right now. And I said, well, okay, come on over. And I'm trying to figure out what in the world I'm going to make this work. He comes over. He was in the graduation rehearsal line. And the registrar is coming through with their little check sheet, making sure everybody's good to go. And he taps him. He says, get out of line. You're not graduating. You failed a class he had with me. You failed one of Dr. Lambert's classes. Uh, You can't graduate with a failure on your record. And you need this class to graduate from your degree program. You're not graduating. Well, he's explaining this situation to me. What had happened? He started dating this girl over the semester. Started pursuing this relationship with her. Things got real serious real quick. They got engaged. Uh, And in the midst of all that, he forgot 
to do work for my class. And I'm, I don't grade most of the work for students in my class. I have uh, graders that do that. And the grader for that class kept reaching out to this guy. There was an assignment due every week in this particular class. It was a senior level class and required a, a written six to ten page paper every week. Um, and after a couple of weeks, he said, hey, you're not getting your papers turned into the class. We need to grade those. And he was reaching out to him weekly. Hey, we need these papers. We need these papers. And finally, uh, nothing happened. So he issued a failing grade for the class, which is exactly what he should have done. The problem is... He was so clueless, he didn't realize this. He's going to graduation, and his parents had flown in for graduation. His grandparents had flown in from overseas for graduation. Uh, His future (laughs) in-laws had flown in uh, for this graduation to meet him for the first time. And the grandparents that had flown in from overseas had rented uh, a place for them to have a graduation party. So he said, Dr. Lambert, I have to graduate. I have to graduate. I, I, all my family's here. There's this rental room. The, my future family members are here. I don't know how I'm going to go and say to my future in-laws, to my fiance, you're all here for nothing because I'm not graduating. And he sat in my office and wept. Now, he's really in pain. He's in pain because of things that he did wrong, but it's real pain nonetheless. Individuals like this are clearly guilty of sin, but that fact doesn't mitigate their pain. And wise ministry is going to have to consider that. Second context that's challenging is counselees sinning in response to their suffering. A few examples here. A wife who refuses to forgive her husband for his adultery. All right, so now go back to that couple that I mentioned a moment ago. That dude ultimately did break off his relationship with, his, with this other woman as an overflow of conviction in his heart. But then his wife started struggling. She was struggling to forgive him. In fact, at one point in our relationship together, she absolutely refused to forgive him. I'll talk about that a little bit more when we get back together this afternoon. She absolutely refused to forgive him. She said, no, I'm not doing it. And she did that for reasons that are understandable, right? I mean, he had in a cruel and heartless way with one of her dearest friends engaged in sexual immorality and was willing to ask her to tolerate that so that he could have both women. And when he finally was broken over it, she said, I'm not going to forgive him. Now we get it. I get it. That is heartless betrayal. And yet, Jesus says, you've got to forgive. He says about the unforgiving servant who got thrown in jail. In Matthew chapter 18, he said, So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. You've got to forgive from the heart. She said no. What about a widower? who loses his job after failing to return to work in the months after his wife's death. Go back to that story I told a moment ago. That man, he wasn't able to get himself back into work. His boss went to our church and said, you take all the time you need. Uh, We want to help you get back on your feet, so you take all the time you need. And for two months that worked. But he wasn't getting out of bed. He wasn't shaving. Uh, the kids aren't being cared for. And so I've got everybody coming to me. I've got his boss coming to me by the time we're in month three. And he goes, what do I do? He said, I said, take all the time you need. And, and I meant it. I just didn't know he would need three months. And now I'm like paying out this money and the work is piling up and I don't know what to do. This, this guy who 
my goodness, that kind of pain. I was just talking with Glenn last night. If something happened to Lauren, I cannot imagine. I mean, I literally have no category for what would go on in my life if something like that happened to me. And yet, here he's got these kids, here he's got this job, here he's got these other responsibilities, and after three months, we got into month five, actually, and he's just not able to get back in the swing of things. We understand the pain, don't we? But we also understand the need to respond to that pain with some kind of responsibility after a certain period of time. What do we do? This is challenging ministry at the intersection of sin and suffering. And the methodological question, the process question that we need to answer is which should we engage first? You can't, you can't do two things at once. You can only say one message at a time. Uh, so which, which should we engage first? Should we engage sin or suffering first? And what I want to encourage is that the general rule is that when we're dealing with counselees in those two extremes, in those two confusing situations, people sinning in response to their suffering and suffering in response to their sin, as a general rule, we want to engage the suffering first and then engage sin. Let me give you some reasons to do that. First of all, it's Christ-like. It's Christ-like to engage suffering first. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking about his own ministry in terms that he receives from the prophet Isaiah. And as he describes the words of Isaiah about the ministry of the Messiah, the ministry that Jesus is at that moment fulfilling, he, he quotes this from the prophet Isaiah, and he says it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. Of himself, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's an amazing passage about our Christ. It's a, it's a passage that teaches that Jesus the Messiah is on the lookout for broken and hurting people. This is the language of a bruised reed, a reed that has been broken. It's the language of a smoldering wick. It's a, it's a flame that's just about to die, and there's more smoke than heat and light. Jesus is on the lookout for these weaknesses, for these signs of distress. And Jesus would never consider ever breaking a bruised reed. He would never consider stamping out or quenching a smoldering wick. It's the ministry of Christ to care gently for bruised reeds. It's the ministry of Christ to try to fan into flame a smoldering wick. The ministry of Jesus is hard for high-handed sinners. Woe to you, Pharisees. Your whitewashed tombs. But when he sees people weakened, even by their sin, his instinct is to be gentle. The woman at the well. I tell you what, you go and you sin no more. The woman caught in adultery. You go, you sin no more. Jesus is on the lookout, even in the midst of sin, for people who are bowed down and about to break, and he's never harsh with them. So it's Christ-like to engage suffering first. Here's another one. It's gentle. Look at Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is giving instruction about this very thing. And he says, Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now that's amazing. He's talking about people who are guilty of sin. If somebody's caught in a transgression, you, you, whoever's reading it, whoever's hearing this, 
you just got responsibility to restore that person. Well, that's not my business. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You don't get to say what's your business and what's not. God does. God says, if your brother is caught in a transgression, you just got the assignment to restore them. And we think of this kind of restoration, this kind of admonishment that we talked about in 1 Thessalonians, we can think of that as this harsh thing. A rebuke sounds negative. Sounds like nothing we want to be a part of. But the Apostle Paul here says, your restoration, your rebuke should be in a spirit of gentleness. One of the ways that, uh, that I think about this is to think about it like this. The best rebukes are the rebukes that don't feel like the way we think of a rebuke. That's the best way to get a rebuke. Several years ago, uh, I was finishing up my dissertation, and I'd all, my eyes had never been perfect. My left eye is better than perfect vision. I think it's 2015, but my right eye is really messed up. But it wasn't so bad that I needed glasses. I could function. But after a couple years of writing a dissertation, you're reading and writing for 8, 10 hours a day, uh, my eyes finally said, you know what, Heath, forget you. And uh, I joke that uh, my dissertation's gift to me was glasses. And there was about, it was about two months away from what would turn out to be the end of my dissertation. And I just couldn't do it anymore. One afternoon, I mean, the page kept going in and out of focus. And I'm like opening eyes. And I was like, forget it. And I went to the doctor. He's like, yeah, you're going to need glasses if you need. If you're going to be reading and writing all day, you know, you don't have to wear them all the time. But if you're going to be doing this all day, you're going to have to be wearing glasses. And actually, since then, every year... My vision's gotten a little bit worse, and now I have to wear stuff all the time. I have contacts in. But the first pair of contacts they put me on were really uncomfortable, and they didn't work. So I started, I started wearing glasses to read and write. But I hated wearing glasses. They get all smudged up, and you get hot, and they get foggy. and It just was, it was annoying. But So the first time I'm wearing glasses, I was actually speaking at a training center uh, for ACBC uh, in New York, and I was hosted by a delightful pastor and his wife. And over the whole weekend, I'm trying to like deal with these new glasses. But I don't want to have them on, so I wouldn't take them in to the pulpit when I was speaking. And so I'm like holding the Bible up to the light, like trying to see, what does that word say? And I was stumbling over the words. And it looked like an idiot. I should have just put the glasses on. But, um, but I didn't do that. And... Then uh, the pastor and his wife kept noticing it. And then at breakfast one morning, I was like, I was trying to read something. And I was like, well, let me get these glasses out. And I put them on. And I was like, okay. And I put them away. And she said, do you know what? When I was about your age, I had to start wearing glasses too. She wore glasses. She said, I had to start wearing glasses when I was your age too. And I felt the same way. It just annoyed me to have to wear these things. And I was complaining all the time. And then I realized, do you know what? The Lord is so kind to give the blessing of glasses, and I'm just going to receive that gratefully and wear them. And I was like, wait a second. I think I just got rebuked by this woman right at the breakfast table. But it was this warm, sweet, kind, gentle woman who was letting me know she'd been through the same thing I had. She rebuked me just as big as anything, but in this really gentle way. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going to wear these stinking glasses. So I started wearing them, and now I'm thankful to have uh, contacts that are more comfortable. But it's that kind of rebuke that is gentle. This is a text, Galatians 6 is, that makes us responsible not just to restore and rebuke, but to think carefully about how to do that gently. If you have not yet thought about how to engage in restoration that is gentle, you're not yet ready to restore. This has to be something that is gentle. And dealing with people's suffering is one way. There's many ways we could apply this, actually. But, but dealing with someone's suffering is one way to be gentle, to let them know that we care about the environment of pain they're in, and it's helpful. Another 
reason it's good to deal with suffering first is because it's strategic. It's strategic to deal with suffering first. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. It says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So there's two things here. There is the apples of gold and there's the setting of silver. The apples of gold are the words we say. And the setting of silver is the fitly spokenness of them, the context in which we say them. They both go together. It's not just saying the right thing. It's saying it at the right time. Otherwise, we're just throwing golden apples at people. You know, the same idea is actually if you flip over in Ephesians chapter 4, you see the same thing. In, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, It says in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. No corrupting talk. Talk is corrupting when it doesn't build up, and among other things, when it doesn't fit the occasion. You can say the right thing at the wrong time. Jesus Christ When he was foretelling of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he said, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. Isn't that something? Jesus Christ. Is there anybody more committed to truth and change than Jesus? He gave his life for it. But he's showing some strategy here. He says, I got a lot of things I got to say to you. But if I say it to you now, you won't be able to bear it. So I'm going to hold off. There are all kinds of things that we need to say that we don't need to say right now. To say it a different way, not everything that needs to be said needs to be said at this moment. I might see sin in your life. In fact, if, in 99% of cases, if you're any good at counseling, you will see sin in that person's life. But just because I see it right now doesn't mean I have to say it right now. And if we're thinking about being gentle, and if we realize that we can be like Jesus and know all kinds of things that we need to say, but not have to say it right at this moment, then I can earn some credibility with you by walking with you through your pain so that uh, I have some ability to rebuke you later. In fact, this just happened a couple weeks ago. A married couple I've been meeting with for a while, uh, sin and suffering all jumbled up in their marriage. And uh, I've got an observer in the, in the room. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I let him have it with a strong rebuke. And uh, this observer is a staff person at our church and uh, said, you know, after they left, I said, so how'd that go? And she said, I have never seen you talk to people that way. She said, how often have you done that? I mean, this was a strong, I mean, I cracked the whip. But I said, you know, maybe five times in 16 years, maybe five times I've done that. I said, do you think it was too much? She said, you know what? I don't. She said, I think they had to hear a strong word. And they went away and they sent some emails that were kind of like, whoa, that was a big deal today. And they came back, it was two weeks ago. And I've been meeting with them for four or five months. And they said, we were shocked that you spoke to us that way. But we're glad you did. Because we needed to hear it. And then she said, the wife said, but do you know, I think the reason we could take it is because for all these months, you have been so gentle and patient with us. And... She said, we got in the car after last week and said, can you believe he said that to us? Here's the point. The point is, sometimes people do need a strong rebuke. 
Sometimes people do need the spiritual whip cracked. Jesus did that. Sometimes people do need that, but that takes a lot of relational credibility to pull that off. And the reason they didn't say, well, forget you and never come back is because I'd been investing in them for four or five months, very slowly, very gently, very patiently getting involved in their lives. And what they concluded is Heath would never, ever do that to us unless we were really blowing it. And uh, the Lord used it and they changed. So as a general rule, we deal with suffering before sin. But there are some exceptions to this general rule. Let me mention those just quickly. If a counselee is not yet suffering in his sin, then you can't engage them as a sufferer. You have to engage them as a sinner. If you have a husband that doesn't give a rip what his wife thinks of him, he's just going to keep fooling around. Well, he's not broken. So we're just dealing with rebukes, and we have to bring conviction until there's brokenness, and then we minister in the brokenness. If a counselee is a danger to himself or to others, we don't always have the time to engage sensitively and gently, but we just have to act. Uh, And there's times when you just have to hey, I'd love to take more time, I'd love to be softer, I'd love to be slower, but this person's in danger or they're endangering others, and uh, I just have to act here. Another potential exception is as if a counselee is engaging in illegal activity uh, that the authorities have to be involved in. So there are some exceptions to the general rule, but in general terms, for the most part, we should be the kinds of people who are like Jesus, who are humble and gentle and strategic, and we're trying to deal with suffering before we deal with sin. Now, how much time we deal with the suffering before we get to sin is going to vary on a case-by-case basis. We will spend a relatively short amount of time on suffering with the husband who's in pain over having to break off his adulterous relationship. So this man in my office, he's crying. I don't want to call her. I don't want to break it off. I love her. You know how I dealt with suffering first there? But it was about three seconds. I said, you know what? I know it's hard. And I'm so sorry about that. But you need to do this. There you go. That's all I needed. Okay, a little bit of sensitivity, a little bit of identification, but the reality is his wife's in more pain sitting two feet from him. And in any event, he's got to do the right thing here. Uh, We're going to spend more time with the wife who's dealing with bitterness over his affair and is refusing to forgive. And the reason we deal with more and less time depending on those two extremes is because it's the issue of responsibility. This woman didn't do anything wrong, but she got this pain shoved in her lap. This guy is responsible for what he's caused, and he's the one who's got to stop it. So we don't have time in this situation. Well, let's just, let's just take a couple months here to make sure you feel really good about this. And then when you're ready, that's when you can walk away from this other woman. That's absurd. Uh, praise the Lord. All right. Um, but then... We have to talk about the really practical issue of moving from engaging suffering to engaging sin. It's the issue of turning the corner. We're going to engage in suffering first, but how do we transition from suffering to sin? I want to say something, and it's, it relates to what I was talking about last night where I was saying, hey, we've been dealing with sin. How do you know if somebody's changing? And I dealt with that in the context of Sin, and I said there's a lot more to say about that, and we've said some of those things already this morning. You have to turn the corner from dealing with suffering to dealing with sin when those two things are mixed in together. When you're dealing with suffering, you are helping them respond to suffering in a way that God wants them to. You're earning credibility with them to deal with the sin, but you have to turn the corner. And you have to turn the corner, and here we go, because counselees, even when their suffering is mingled with their sin, they won't really begin to change until you start dealing with the sin. 
That's when the real change will happen. And here's why. It's not because God's ministry in suffering is any less profound than his ministry in sin. It absolutely is. But when we're talking about suffering, most of the time we're dealing with things I can't change. That wife, she can't stop her husband from doing what he's doing. I can't stop my mother from dying. You can't stop the bad situations that you're dealing with in your life most of the time where other people are responsible. But you are responsible for how you respond to those things. And so if you're having a sinful response to suffering you can't do anything about, you really can begin to change in your response. And so we have to turn the corner. And the way I'd encourage you to turn the corner is by remembering three words. Listen, share, teach. Listen, share, teach. We turn the corner from dealing with suffering to dealing with sin first as we listen to people. James 1.19 says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Uh, The first thing we're supposed to do is listen. The last thing we're supposed to do is speak. Do you know how many times I have had people tell me their story? And before I say anything, they start crying and say, thank you. Nobody has ever listened to me tell that whole thing before. I mean, the ministry of listening is powerful. Uh, It's not only powerful because you can't speak until you've heard. It's powerful because it's an expression of care. We live in a fast world where people have bigger fish to fry than listen to your problems. And if you can be the person who can just sit there and say, tell me some more about that. That sounds like that was really hard. What was that like? People don't ask those kinds of questions. And just hearing communicates care to people who are broken. But we can't only listen. We, we have to then respond, and that gets to the second thing, share. After you've listened to the person who is guilty of sin and is experiencing suffering in whatever order, then you can share, and you can, do, you can share in two ways. You can share your story. All of us have stories of pain. All of us have stories of brokenness. And we can begin to turn the corner in dealing with suffering to dealing with sin as we share our own story of pain. You don't have to have the same story of pain as the person you're helping. But you you can just communicate, hey, I know what it is to go through a hard season. The, the only caution I give there is it, what would be really bad is if you're listening to a counselee, say, talk about the pain of uh, experiencing the loss of a spouse. And then you share your story of when your dog died or a check bounced or something like that. That's not good because that, that demeans their pain, right? It compares a relatively large category of suffering with a relatively small category of suffering. Uh, But you can just share, hey, you know, I've been there. I know what this is like. Another way that we can share, and maybe most of the time this will be the best thing to do, is to share Scripture. You know, the Bible's honest about the pain we experience in this life. The Bible is honest about the difficulties that we face. Uh, The Bible is not whitewashed. Uh, God takes credit for and is honest about the pain that goes on in this life. Look at Psalm 13 as we wrap up. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. You can read a text like Psalm 13 or 1 Corinthians 11 or Romans 8 or Psalm 55. Listen, I've had people, I've read texts like this to people and they're shocked that words like that are in the Bible. You can say that? It helps people when they can see that there are others who have shared their pain. And here, nothing less, no one less than David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is honest, God, what are you doing? And how long is this going to last? Words like this can give voice to people who are experiencing pain. So we listen, we share either our story or a text of Scripture, and then third, we teach. If we've shared our story, we can say, you know what, in the midst of my pain, let me tell you what the Lord taught me. And then we do go to Bible. We do go to texts. When we share through the scriptures like this, we can say, as we share, you know, David understands. David understands what it's like to go through a hard time. David understands what it's like to have questions about what the Lord is doing. But he doesn't just stay there. And here's where we teach. David does something that you're not doing. He says, God, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Even in the midst of pain, David can see through the circumstances that God has dealt bountifully with him. In real pain, there's real trust. And we can say things like, you know, I understand this is hard. And so does David and so does God. But you need to trust the Lord in this rather than curse him. That's a rebuke right there. If any of us ever have to be told, you need to trust the Lord instead of cursing him, that's a rebuke. We've just been rebuked. That's not a good thing. But how you do it makes all the difference. And when you've taken time to listen, and when you've taken time to share, and you can point to words of Scripture that point a better way, we've dealt with suffering and we've dealt with sin in the best possible way. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word equips us with how to do complicated ministry. We thank you that it equips us with how to deal with pain. Father, we pray that you'd give us growing skill as we think even more about these issues, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.